Let's have a word of prayer. Almighty God, you are the God of all time, the God of all creation, the God who always has been, always is, and always will be. You are the God who welcomes us into this new season of life, and you also welcome us, though, into ancient and abiding truth, truth that we encounter in Scripture, truth that uh, corrects and encourages us in our lives with you, a truth that continues to inform this world. We thank you that we can be gathered together. We thank you for friendship, for fellowship, for prosperity, for peace, for all the things that we enjoy right here in this place, realizing that these are blessings from you and that not all share to the same degree that we do. So we don't want to take them for granted, and especially we do not want to take you for granted. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for giving us life this day, and we praise you for all of that in the name of the Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right, dear friends, um, those of you who were here on Sunday got just a little piece of this conversation, but we'll repeat that sort of, I, I kind of like to know where I am in things. Do you like to know where you are? I like to know where I'm physically located. I wake up in the morning and say, where am I? Do you do that? Yes. <laughs> and sometimes it takes a while to get recalibrated. The GPS has to come in and all that stuff. Uh, I like to know where I am in, in time, at least the way that we count time, right? I like to know where I am just kind of in the general scheme of everything. Uh, and of course, that scheme for, for me especially and for all of us here uh, is partly determined by the kind of things that we're studying, the kinds of things that we're focusing on. We have been looking, of course, uh, so far in this, uh, this educational year, this program year, at the great theological truths that speak from out of the Apostles' Creed. And we're going to take a break from the Apostles' Creed. I'll explain why in a moment, but we will pick back up again with looking at the rest of the Creed as we move into March and as we move into the season of Lent, uh, getting ready to celebrate Easter. So um, we're going to take a break partly because it's just good to take a break from things every once in a while. Uh, also, because this is a, a beautiful season uh, to be looking at the particular topic we're going to be studying for about nine weeks now, and that is the theological topic of light in the scriptures, okay? Um, as I mentioned to you on Sunday, back in the summertime when we were working on all of our plans, Juan Carlos Acosta came to me with the idea of preaching a series of sermons on light and, and having a series of worship services on light because the choir is going to be learning a very, very difficult but beautiful piece of music called Lux Eterna, Light Eternal partly because they're going to be going to France this summer, starting in Paris, the city of lights, and singing about light. And so Juan said, well, let's start playing around with light. And he actually gave me three or four topics, ideas for sermons, and so I expanded that into nine Sundays worth of looking at the occurrence of the word light in the scriptures to begin with, and then looking at that broad theological topic. Now, there, we've mentioned before there are lots of different ways to study the scripture. Obviously, you can just start at the beginning and go all the way to the end. You can try to arrange things chronologically, as we did with a group here about a year ago. You can look at individual books. You can look at people. But it's also very helpful to look at, at themes that occur throughout all of scripture. And the word light, the idea of light, is a major uh, idea, it's a major image, if you will, uh, in the scriptures. Uh, it occurs at the very beginning, it occurs at the very end, and at some point we will come back and look at the, the idea of in the beginning God created the light and the dark, that sort of thing. But today we're gonna look at, at one passage uh, from the uh, second chapter of Luke uh, that is in some sense kind of a follow-on uh, to the story of the birth of Jesus. Now, last week, we, we did not meet here, but last week in Scripture, we looked uh, at um, uh, how Jesus is the light that's come into the world and how the, the wise men, the magi, followed the light of the star. And today, we're going to talk more about that theme of light when it occurs as Jesus is, is brought into the temple. So let's, uh, let's just read the passage. This is Luke 2. Uh, we're going to look at uh, verses 22 through 38. So <coughs> Excuse me. When the time came for their purification, that would be Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, they meaning Mary and Joseph, brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At the moment she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Thus endeth the reading of the word. Thanks be to God. Absolutely. Absolutely. How many of you grew up in church where that's the way it was done? Thus endeth the reading of the word. Yeah. Sometimes it just feels good to go back to that old stuff. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. How, you've heard this story. You've, you've heard about Simeon. You've heard about Anna. You've heard about Joseph and Mary taking Jesus into the temple. Let's, let's look at each piece of this, and we'll also focus on that, that topic of light. First of all, Joseph and Mary are good Jews. Okay, we've talked about this before, and I want to re-emphasize this point. Joseph and Mary were not Christians. That comes as a shock to a lot of people, <laughs> right? They weren't Christians. In fact, Joseph and Mary were probably dead and gone by the time people started calling themselves Christians. And interestingly enough, looking at it one way, Jesus was not a Christian, <laughs> right? Jesus was the son of of good Jews. I'm emphasizing that because here we see that Joseph and Mary do for Jesus what is customary, what is part of the, the habit, the ritual, the practice, the tradition, the faithful expression of life before God and life with God in the Jewish tradition. That idea, that uh, thought, that experience uh, occurs over and over again in the gospel according to Luke and also in the story that Luke tells uh, about the life of the early church in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Let's talk specifically about what they did and then we'll talk a little bit about the broader meaning of that. Number one, it was required in the law of the Jewish people after a woman had had a baby to be purified. Okay? There was lots of interesting conversation and thought in ancient religion, including the Jewish religion, about what you and I consider to be kind of the normal functions of life, right? One of the normal functions of life is for women to have babies, right? Pretty standard. Nurse, would you agree with that? It's a, it happens all the time. It's happening as we speak right now. In fact, it's going to be happening to Charity Atkins, our director of uh, children's ministry. She's due to have her baby uh, later next month, and we're having a baby shower today, a staff baby shower. And so uh, we are voting on whether we think it's a boy or a girl based on the color of clothing that we're wearing. So what do you think I think the boy? Okay. <clears throat> all right. None of that is in the text that we're looking at today. <laughs> All right, a woman has to be purified. Um, 
after most significant life events in ancient religions, including Jewish religion, there's something that happens to place a person before God. And to say, thank you, God, for this. God, I need to recover from this. We need to move on from this. This is a significant milestone in life. And so the way that a woman would be purified would be to come to the temple and offer a sacrifice. Now, if you were kind of middle class or above, we can look at it that way in some sense, you were required to sacrifice perhaps a sheep, uh, a lamb perhaps, uh, and then a, a bird of some kind, you know, a dove or a pigeon. If you did not have the resources in order to sacrifice a lamb, because that's a pretty valuable commodity, um, then you could sacrifice two birds, right? Two doves or two pigeons. We're told here that Joseph and Mary sacrifice two birds, which tells us about their economic status, right? They come from, from people of very, very um, meager means, if you will. But they do that. They also come because the law requires that every firstborn male be dedicated to God. You dedicate a child in the temple. And it's not discussed here, and so maybe it didn't happen, but uh, when you brought your firstborn son to God, in order for you to sort of take your son back and claim him as your own, even though he belonged to God, he also belonged to you, you offered a, a gift of five shekels. You paid in some sense a tax of five shekels, okay? In the scriptures, we're told that when Samuel, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, when Samuel was brought to the temple, his parents did not pay that tax because after Samuel was weaned, they turned him over to life in the temple. Samuel grew up in the temple. Now, some people believe that Joseph and Mary did not pay that five shekel redemption because Jesus also would be dedicated to a life with God. That may be what's going on here, maybe not, but it's an interesting idea. Certainly, Jesus is a person whose life is dedicated to God. So Joseph and Mary come to, to enact, to follow the tradition of their faith and of their faithfulness, right? And I want to make a little bit of a big deal about that because it is a big deal for Luke and it's a big deal for the early church. Okay? Much of what we need to do to understand faith is to understand what was going on back then before we apply it to today. And think about this. Jesus appears on the scene, begins to preach and teach. A lot of the, the leadership of, of the, the nation of the Hebrews, of the Jewish people, uh, most of the leadership, in fact, says that Jesus is all wrong, that Jesus is, in fact, a blasphemer, so much so that they, that they have him executed, all right? And yet, some people say, no, Jesus is the one who has it right about Judaism. In fact, Jesus is the Messiah. And so you have two people arguing on either side of the question. Either Jesus was the fulfillment and the pinnacle, the completion of everything about Judaism, or he was the act, exact opposite of that. Okay, you see where that argument lies. Well, as the early New Testament writers and, and witnesses to Jesus' life spoke about Jesus, they said, look, Jesus was a good Jew. In fact, he was a great Jew, and he came from a great Jewish family. They were as Jewish as you possibly can get. In fact, they were so Jewish that they, Jesus himself, of course, fulfilled what Judaism is all about. And so early Christians uh, took great pains to remind everybody in that era of just how Jewish Jesus and Joseph and Mary were, okay? Now, clearly, uh, Jesus uh, did not go down well with much of Jewish society, with much of Jewish establishment, because, of course, he was confronting and challenging misguided practices, misguided ideas, ways in which Judaism had become corrupt, right? And of course, Jesus then was moving on to, to, to even greater heights in some sense, if you will, teaching about God and teaching about what Judaism was actually meant to be about. Does that all make sense to you? And so um, the, the early New Testament writers are going to show us that Jesus is the ideal person in some sense to be a critic of and a reformer of Judaism because he knows what it's all about. Does that make sense to you? He's not an outsider, he's an insider. 
who is reforming and expanding from within the inside, okay? Now, I say that not just because of what's here in this one story, but that idea is repeated over and over again in the scriptures, right? Jesus comes to Nazareth, to his hometown synagogue, later on Luke will tell us, and he opens the book of the prophet Isaiah and begins to read from Isaiah. Jesus is a good church-going boy, and, and when he reads from the book of the scroll, he says, today this scripture is fulfilled, right? Jesus was the fulfillment the completion of everything about what true Judaism was all about. I also will, I've harped on this before, you've heard me harp on this, but it's still important because so many Christians divorce Christianity from Judaism. Uh, you really cannot understand Christian faith. You really don't know what Christianity is about unless you also understand what was going on long before Jesus appeared on the scene. And so here we have in this ritual of the purification of Mary and the dedication of Jesus, you have people who are placing themselves before God, right? To thank God for the gift of a child, to recognize that God has been involved in this process all along, uh, to dedicate this child to God. And in fact, that's something that has survived in, in the best of Christian practice. When we have a baby, we understand that that baby is a gift to us, right? And, and mom and dad and the larger family are responsible for that baby. But also, in a sense, that baby doesn't really belong to you. That baby is its own person before God. Do you know what I'm talking about? So all this stuff is going on in this story as Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to the temple. Now, of course, much more goes on than that, but we have to understand that background because now we're going to have kind of a, a surprise appearance, if you will, uh, and we need to talk a little bit about Simeon. Okay, how many of you, have you ever studied Simeon? Anybody ever here really focused on Simeon a lot? Oftentimes we don't because the story of Simeon and Anna, the baptism of Jesus, all of those things um, liturgically, the way the church kind of historically celebrates these things, happens right after Christmas. And in our culture, we're also sick and tired of Christmas. We're just ready to get on with New Year's and the Super Bowl and uh, the Golden Globes and the Oscars, and we kind of don't focus on these things, okay? But I'm not going to let you escape without looking at Simeon and Anna. Let's talk a little bit about Simeon. What, what does the scripture say about Simeon? There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, okay? Right there, we're introduced to another devout, righteous, sincere, faithful Jew, right? A faithful man, a man who has put himself, put his life in the hands of God. He has paid attention to God all of his life, we are told. When we say that he was devout, when he was righteous, that is no faint praise, right? In that day and time, to say that someone was righteous was a big deal. Uh, you didn't call everybody righteous. You certainly didn't say that the Gentiles were righteous. You didn't even say that all the Jews were righteous. Simeon is known as a righteous man. He is very, very serious about his faith, right? He has been looking forward to the consolation of Israel. We'll talk a little bit more about what that is. But notice what goes on with Simeon, right? Anytime you see a word or a phrase being repeated in Scripture, you've got to pay attention to it. Verse 25 at the end, the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. The Holy Spirit is a big deal right here. The Holy Spirit is, is, is functioning, operating, moving, acting. That's another important thing that happens all throughout the scriptures, but especially now that Jesus has arrived. And Luke wants us to be sure to understand that his story about Jesus, his story about Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna and all the rest, is fundamentally a story not about any of them, but a story about the Spirit, about God, what God is doing in all of this. The primary character, if you will, if you want to look at this from a, a literary perspective, right? Those of you who've taken English lit and written all kinds of papers, the protagonist of this story is God. God the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, God shows up in Jesus. That's, that's a big part of the story. But the Spirit speaks to Simeon. Let's stop there for just a second and, and think more deeply about this. 
how in the world did this old man know that this one particular baby, out of all the babies that were brought that day or brought that week or brought that month, how did he know that particular baby was the promised Messiah? Uh, the Holy Spirit. That's the only answer that we can come up with, right? There, the, people say, well, this, this is just another one of those miracle stories. There's no way that Simeon would know. You know, he's just an old man. How, how, you, can, you, know, you can look at a dozen babies. You can look at 20 dozen babies, and they all look alike. They all look like babies, unless they're my grandson Corbin, of course, but that's another story, Right? God is involved here. There's something happening very special. Now, already in the stories of Luke, you know, the, the spirit appears in the form of an angel to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then, of course, to Mary and to Joseph and the shepherds. I mean, this is just more of what the spirit is doing. The spirit is speaking to Simeon. So let's step aside from that for just a moment, and let me ask you this question. Has the Spirit ever spoken to you? Yes. Okay. Now, lots of us maybe have never heard the Spirit, never felt the Spirit, and yet still we trust the Spirit. Some people have had profound and moving and unmistakable experiences of the presence of the Spirit. People who don't believe disregard all that. Maybe they've, maybe they've never had that experience, or they don't trust that others have had that experience. But that is a fundamental piece of what goes on in our relationship with God. We either trust when other people say, I had this experience, or we have our own experience, or both. Ideally, both, right? Simeon had this experience. We are not told how Simeon experienced the Spirit in this. But let me ask you, how do you experience, how do you know when the Spirit is saying something or doing something in your life? Let's have some answers. You feel it. You feel it. Yes, yes, you feel it. Now, I know a lot of people say, oh, that's just your feelings. You can feel whatever you want to feel. Sometimes you feel the Spirit, you were going through a terrible situation, yet still you felt the presence of God that got you through that, right? Yeah, yeah. How many of you have had a similar experience to that? Okay, that's a lot of hands. That's one of the reasons you're here today. Okay, it's one of the reasons I'm here today. is because I've had similar experiences of going through hell, but God was there with me in hell. It was unmistakable, okay? Great, great, great uh, explanation of that. How else do you experience the presence of the Spirit? Yes, yeah. when you're praying about something and you get this remarkable sense of peace about it, right? Yeah, absolutely. How many of you have had that kind of experience of the Spirit? Yeah, yeah. I've had that, and, and, and uh, you know, in, in, in the privileged work that I get to do, I hear about a lot of people's experiences, and that is one of the unmistakable marks to me of, of when the Spirit is speaking, especially when you're at peace about something that maybe you shouldn't really be at peace about, right? You know, I talk to somebody who says, I'm giving up my life and I'm, I'm going off to, you know, deep dark Africa or wherever to be a missionary and I'm totally at peace with it. Uh, well, being at peace with something can be one of the signals that the Spirit actually is saying something, for sure. Someone else, how would you experience? Yes, ma'am. It just is a thought or a voice inside my head that's very specific. It says something very specific that I can go and do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I yeah. know that it's not me, it's God. A thought or a voice, something that, that, yes. that is just coming from somewhere else, it's, it's just not you. Oftentimes, doesn't that happen almost randomly, or you're, you're thinking about something over here, and all of a sudden, something else pops up, right? Yeah, that's the, I, I actually had that experience just a couple of weeks ago, and don't laugh at this, it was on the golf course, okay? <laughs> it wasn't about the golf, though. Um, I, I was playing golf, and, and in the back of my mind, I was feeling guilty about playing golf because of all the other things I should have been doing, but then something popped up into my head and said, well, maybe you're supposed to be here uh, for, for, uh, because of, you know, you're going to help somebody medically, Okay. Uh, with a medical situation. I have had some medical training, and it, that was just a weird thought, because I, I don't normally practice medicine, so we need to be sure that... The, 
I mean, in a way I do, but that's another story. At any rate, um, five minutes later, one of the guys I was playing golf with said, I'm, I, I need to get some food right away because I'm having a, experiencing a low blood sugar. He was having an, an insulin reaction, uh, and so we got some food. He was fine. It wasn't a big deal, um, but with the experience of our family, I have a lot of experience with that. And all of a sudden I thought, wow, God told me five minutes before that happened that it was going to happen. Now, some people want to say that's just coincidence or whatever, you're making a big deal out of it, but, I, you know, there are more and more stories like that. Yeah, so that happens. How else do you feel? How else do you know the Spirit is speaking? Yes. For me, it's when my thoughts and my feelings take me out of my comfort zone and make me want to go beyond what I normally would want to do. Think oh. some, maybe something that's... A, difficult for me to do, uh-huh. but I, I just feel it inside, like I have to do this. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Something that leads you out of your comfort zone, takes you to a place where in your mind, your heart, you know you should want to go, or sh- something you should do, but you're not sure about it, but the Spirit propels you into that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Just because you feel the Spirit doesn't mean it's all going to be hunky-dory and sweet and puppies and rainbows and things, right? Sometimes it leads you into really tough stuff, but if it is the Spirit, that's exactly what you do. Yeah, for sure. Yes. I think also you have to be receptive. Uh, people that aren't receptive aren't going to realize what's going on. And when you're receptive and open to the Lord and mm-hmm. to the Holy Spirit, it's easy to identify these things. If your mind is closed, mm-hmm. you aren't receptive to the things that are sent to you that you just don't... Uh, realize are there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In, in a sense, that's like giving something the benefit of the doubt, right? There are lots of things in life where you can say it's either this or it's this, right? And there's good argument for both ways. But if you are open to the possibility even that God could speak, you begin to see that happening more and more. In a sense, we're told that's who Simeon was. That's the kind of person Simeon was. He had been looking forward to the consolation of Israel. He was open, right? He was devout and righteous. He had been placing himself before God all of his life. He'd been coming to the temple, right? He'd been studying the scripture. He'd been been surrounding himself with God's people. He had been open to that. All of those are, are, those are beautiful descriptions of the way that the Spirit speaks, okay? Now, I want us to be very aware of that dynamic as we're thinking especially about the idea of the light of God appearing, uh, because I would propose to you that the light is always there, but you, you don't see the light unless you open your eyes. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that's an important piece of the story. Okay, so here's Simeon, right? He, the Holy Spirit moves him. We have some understanding of what might have been going on with Simeon. Uh, Simeon takes the child, right? He sees Jesus, and he says, Nunc dimittis. Nunc dimittis. Any of you familiar with that term? Nunc dimittis. This is what this speech of Simeon is called in the historic church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, right? Nunc dimittis is Latin for now dismiss, right? You've heard of the, the, is it the Magnificat, right? The Magnificat, when Mary says, you know, my soul magnifies, Magnificat the Lord. This is the Nunc dimittis. Now dismiss your servant in peace because I've seen the salvation of the Lord. Let's go back to the now dismiss for just a second, right? Simeon is an old man. How old do you think Simeon might have been? 80? Could be. 90? You know, in Jesus' culture, you were old if you were past 50. You know, who knows? Who knows? But he's coming to the end of his life, and, and here we see someone who's been looking for God, and obviously seeing God, experiencing God, And now he sees the end of what God is doing, and he's ready to go. I didn't used to think about that so much when I was a 25-year-old pastor. (laughs) But now that I'm not 25, and now that I've helped a lot of people go on into the next kingdom, you begin to think about that, right? I I like to think of that peace that was in Simeon's soul uh, because he had a relationship with God because he knew that God was doing something in the world. 
nunc dimittis. I, I love that term. I love to throw out things like that to people. Kind of gets you thinking, doesn't it? Okay, he says, I have seen the salvation, right? I've seen your salvation, that you've prepared a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel, okay? Why do you think that Simeon describes the salvation that God is bringing in different ways when he talks about the Gentiles and then the, the Jews, right? He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's one way of describing it. But when the Jews, he talks about the glory of the nation of Israel. Why does he use those different ideas? Let's talk about the glory of Israel first, because I want to come back to the light. What, how is Jesus the glory of Israel? Have you ever thought about that? It's what they've been waiting for. He's the Son of God, right? He, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything, right? Uh, glory is an interesting term. We use that term, at least I used to use the term a lot without really understanding what it meant. You know, you're seeing glory, hallelujah, and glory be this, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Glory is about magnifying something, revealing something, expressing something, right? Um, Jesus is the glory of Israel because he is the final, best, utmost expression of everything that God had been doing with Israel for all of history, right? Jesus is the glory of the nation of Israel. And when you think about glory, you think about lots of different things, right? What would be the glory of a nation? Maybe a nation's wealth, maybe its military power, uh, maybe its legacy of literature or of art or its incredible architecture. You know, if you want to go to Washington or Moscow or Rome or London or any of the great capital cities of the world, you see the glory of the world there and the beautiful cities and the, you know, all the buildings. And all that's a, that's a whole bunch of worldly kind of glory stuff, right? Here, Jesus is the glory of Israel. Now, remember, a lot of people thought that Jesus was, was an embarrassment and, and a shame and a sadly uh, misguided, dangerous heretic, okay? But here, Simeon says, no, Jesus is the glory of Israel, the fulfillment. But he says that Jesus is light to the Gentiles. Let's talk about that even more. Yes? I associate glory with light. You associate glory with light. Oh, what a fascinating idea. The light that shines. Yeah, yeah, the brilliance. Yeah, Jesus is an 1,800 million carat diamond, right? Ooh, some of you are saying, where can I get one of those? No, <laughs> right, yes, glory and light are together. Absolutely they are. As light, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, there's a judgment being made here about the Gentiles, okay? Light has been shined on them. Because they were in darkness. Because they were in darkness. They, they didn't know, yes. How many of you go through life thinking that most of the time you're in the dark? <laughs> How many of you can look across someone at the room and say, you know, I don't know, <laughs> right? We talk about, you know, someone who's the last one to know, someone who doesn't understand what's, what's going on. Um, we would say today, the Gentiles were clueless, right? We often use that in a fairly pejorative way, right? When someone doesn't get it, they say they're clueless. The Gentiles are clueless. They're in the dark. They don't know what's going on. Now, part of the implication is that the, the Jews do know what's going on, or they should have known what was going on. And now Jesus reveals something to the Gentile. What does Jesus reveal? What is the content? What is, what, is the, what is the substance that makes up what this light reveals? What is it that Jesus is going to teach the Gentiles? There we go. He's going to teach that God the Father loves them, that he loves them, and that they have life together. They can have a relationship with God. Oh, I love that. He, he teaches them how they're to treat each other, how they are to implement grace, right? How they're to implement grace. It's fascinating if you look at the reasons why people began to uh, flock to faith in Jesus. Um, 
mostly after Jesus' life, it wasn't about miracles and it wasn't about, um, uh, you know, the incredible songs the church was singing or, you know, the great donut holes that they served uh, Sunday morning. Uh, it was about a new way of life that people were living that was based on that implementation of grace. Isn't that interesting? That's what the light is. That's what living in the light is. Yeah, God's using light again. There's a, I'm repeating what you've said so that the tape can, can get it partly, but there, there are lots of reports now and have been for the last several years of, about a great movement of the Holy Spirit through the Muslim world in the Middle East, um, which is partly Christian, of course, too. But um, Muslims are, are having experiences, it's being reported over and over again, experiences in the night of a bright light appearing, of Jesus appearing as light to them, or Jesus appearing with a great deal of radiance. Uh, we see that all through the scriptures. When Jesus shows up, there's big time light going on, uh, and, and they're coming to realize who the Savior is and what the truth of, of, of Christian faith is all about. Yeah, this is still happening. This is still happening. All throughout the discussion of, of uh, people coming to faith, by that I mean through the history since, since Christian times, uh, and even before Christian times, one of the primary ways that people describe physically an encounter with God is light, amazing light. Sometimes it's fire, sometimes it's a star, uh, usually it's just amazing light. And of course we hear from people uh, at the, at, that ha go through uh, life after death experiences or life after life experience sometimes they're called, uh, of, of seeing light or being enveloped in the presence of light. And of course that wonderful movie Cocoon, do you remember the movie Cocoon, <laughs> right? I think Ronnie Howard produced it, wasn't, wasn't he the producer? Yeah, uh, these ancient you know, uh, space beings are full of light. There's kind of interesting thought there. Don't, don't quote me on the Cocoon part. <laughs> it's just a really cool movie, it's a lot of fun, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Muslims coming to faith, it is a, it is a beautiful example, it's a perfect example um, of, of, of the light shining. What is your experience of when uh, we sometimes say, you know, the light bulb comes on, the little light bulb over your head, right? Or, or all of a sudden you see the light. What is that like? Describe what that's like for you. An aura, yeah, yeah. Anybody here see auras? Some people do. A lot of people are not willing to, to talk about that. Um, Helen will talk about that some, sometimes. Sometimes seeing, a, a, it, it's, it's not a this-worldly experience, but seeing a light around, particularly um, when there's, there's a person undergoing great stress but experiencing the presence of God, uh, or, or a person that's just so full of the, of the power of the Spirit, seeing light, yeah. For others, what is it like? Yes. Oh, yeah, cool. Tim sees them. That's cool. That's cool. What else? Experiencing light, yes. An aha moment, yes, yes, yes. You see something, you understand something, you, you comprehend something that you didn't before. And sometimes do, do you say to yourself, why didn't I see it before, right? Why didn't I understand it before? Duh, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. How else do you experience light? Yeah, yeah. You need to decide something. People are telling you. You're thinking about it. it. It doesn't become clear, and all of a sudden it does become clear. Yeah, yeah. That's important. It's, it's important, I think, for us in our relationship with God, in our experience of these things, to press these questions. It's one thing to sit here and say, yes, Simeon saw the light, wasn't that great, but, but how will you see it? How do you experience it? There's nothing all that special about Simeon, really. Simeon's just a guy, right? And, and yes, Simeon has been devout and faithful. Okay, I know thousands of devout and faithful people, right? I know thousands of Simeons and Annas. We'll get to Anna in a moment, right? Uh, what's special is what's going on between them and God that God has precipitated, that God has made happen. Now, let's keep on going with Simeon. Simeon sees the light. He says, here is Jesus. He's the light to the Gentiles. He's the glory of Israel. He's the consolation I've been looking for. And then he gets all negative and dark on us. Simeon says to Mary, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. 
Ooh, we don't want to hear that. Right? One of the, uh, Fred Craddock, who I looked at for this um, study, said that when light appears, it always reveals shadows. Right? Light reveals shadows. Light reveals darkness. Light reveals what you don't want to see. You walk into a room and you flip on the light. And if it's anything like my house, you turn it off right away because you don't want to see all the stuff that's got to be dealt with there. <laughs> right? When you open the hood of the car, the mechanic takes a light and hangs it onto the hood so he can see what's happening, right? And you don't always like what you see there. It's very clear that when the light of God appears, that it's not a positive experience for everyone. We'll talk later on about how we personally experience that, later on, meaning a few Sundays from now. But, but the, light is going, the light of Jesus is going to reveal a dark underside. What do you think Simeon meant by that? How did Jesus reveal darkness? There we are, yeah. Yeah, Jesus showed up and the religious leaders of the time said, you're all wet, you're not what it's about. Jesus exposed the corruption, the fear, the misguided practice. Jesus exposed all of that. And not just in the religious leaders, not just in Judaism, but in everyone, right? Everyone who has an encounter with Jesus has a, has a come to Jesus moment of, oh, things aren't what they should be, Right? That happened a lot in the disciples. Let's talk about the heroes of the Christian faith, right? The true character and nature of even someone as strong as Peter was exposed for what it was, okay? So when we're thinking about the light of God appearing, when we're thinking about the Savior showing up, it's not just, as I say, puppies and rainbows. Uh, there's, there's a price, there's a reckoning, there's a decision to be made. Jesus will appear and it will cause the rising and the falling of many in Israel. When Jesus shows up, a decision has to be made. Right? What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to say to Jesus? Are you going to follow or not follow? All of those things are implied here. And then, of course, he says to Mary, a sword's going to pierce your own soul, too right? And we know what that's about. Mary's going to lose her son. Mary's going to experience terrible suffering and pain. Uh, so when we ask for the light of God to come into our world, uh, we need to understand what we're asking for, right? Right? A lot of people say, I would love it if Jesus would just show up again. And, and, and I understand what they mean. I would love it too if Jesus would just show up again. Except that when he does, he and I are going to have to sit down and have a visit, and he's going to say, what about? <laughs> you know, hopefully there's going to be something on the other side, and he's going to say, cool, but it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Let's go to Anna. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived to the age of 84. Some people think that she lived for 84 years after her husband died which would have made her even much older, of course. Uh, don't get too wound up. You know, 84 is old enough, right? Anna's old. There's something very, very interesting going on in this conversation that you would miss unless you understood the first century culture, and that's the fact, number one, that a woman would be included in the story and that a woman would be described in essentially the same terms as Simeon a person who has the Spirit of God in her life, a person who is righteous and devout. To much of the first century world, including many Jews, the idea that a woman could be as close to God as a man was unthinkable. The idea that a woman could understand anything about God was unthinkable. And yet all through the scriptures, you have women popping up, inconveniently so sometimes, <laughs> It would have been a whole lot easier in the first century world to leave the women out of the story completely. You would have been able to sell the story of Jesus to a lot of people a lot better if you had not included the women. But there's the women, right? This is one of the reasons people say the scriptures must be true because why would you, why would you tell stories that wouldn't, wouldn't serve your purpose, that wouldn't serve your cause? Well, you tell it because it's true and because, of course, there's a larger purpose and a larger cause going on. 
that we would recognize today. We see the light today, right? Women have a relationship with God just like men do. Women can see what God is doing just like men can, and I know you're going to want to tell me that you do it better, okay? (laughs) That's fine with me. (laughs) So here's Anna. Essentially the same message. We don't have as much description of Anna right? But notice what Anna does. She never left the temple but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. Anna is also a good Jew. She's a faithful and devout person, open to seeing, understanding, comprehending, apprehending the presence of God in the world. Yes. No, very good question. Okay, uh, when commentators look at this and try to to actually set the physical stage of this, right, you know that when you go to the temple, if you've ever seen representations or maps, you go to the temple, there's the, the temple has been built on the mount, on Mount Zion, okay, and when the temple was built, they leveled off the mountain, they built retaining walls so that they create a larger, flatter space, okay, some of that retaining wall still exists, it's what we call the western wall today, it's the retaining wall that, that created this big flat space on which the temple was built. Then you went into the outer courtyards of the temple, the temple surrounded by a wall, anybody could go there, Gentiles, Jews, whatever, anybody, And then you would go to a next inner court where Jews could go, women and men, but then to go further into the temple was only the men. So most likely this experience was either in that first outer courtyard or in the second somewhat inner courtyard, but not all the way into the temple, only men could go there. Exactly. Girls are not bar mitzvahed at the wall. Exactly. In in orthodox, very traditional and conservative Judaism. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, those divisions are still among us, to be sure. To be sure. But it's important to locate that. Uh, And that actually highlights the surprise of this story, right? That the first Christians, you know, they're showing how how much Jesus is a part of the tradition and history of Israel and then the fulfillment of that. but you wouldn't necessarily want to say much about Anna. Nobody would really care that much about Anna unless, oh, wait, there's something bigger going on. <laughs> and, oh, wait, it happens to be true. Yeah, good question. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Yes. When Luke wrote it, would he have gotten the information from Mary? That's a very good question. Um, what most people think happened is... Um, that Luke got the information from mostly anonymous Christians and that he also got the information from um, a, a book that was written or letters that were written originally uh, probably by Peter. And this takes us into some theory about the four Gospels and how they came to be. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a lot of information in them that is essentially identical to the three, okay? And then they also have a lot more information, each one of them, especially Matthew and Luke. You remember Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels in terms of the length of it. There is a theory uh, that there was an earlier version of a Gospel that we would call a Gospel, a story of of Jesus, you know, the life and times of Jesus, we'll call it that. and scholars refer to that as the Q document, just to give it a name. We, we don't have such a document, but we theorize that it existed, and many people say it probably came from the writing of Peter, okay? Uh, because Peter was the, was the one who was closest to Jesus. Obviously, Peter came to have kind of a primary role in the, in the life of the early church. So Peter wrote all this stuff, and then Matthew and Mark and Luke used that as the basis for what they said. But here's the interesting question, is that this story about Simeon and Anna only occurs in the gospel according to Luke. So maybe Peter didn't know about it. Maybe Peter didn't think it was significant. So who knows where it really came from. It may well have come from, and it would would be logical to say that it came from the stories that Mary told. Who else would know that this had happened except for Joseph and Mary, and then of course Jesus was, a, was an infant. Jesus didn't know about this. So it's very logical that if, it, it's not likely that Luke actually talked to Mary, uh, more likely that, that Mary would have told the stories and Luke would have heard the stories from others, okay? Luke is from, from Troas. Luke is not from, from Palestine itself. He's from up north close in what is modern day kind of northern Turkey. Uh, so he wasn't part of that area. Although by tradition, Mary went with John to live in Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. There was no such thing as Turkey then. So maybe they had met there, but who knows? Fascinating question. 
Yeah. It'll be interesting to ask Luke and Mary about that at some time, won't it? Yeah. <laughs> you might get to ask before I do, okay? I don't know. Maybe I get to ask before you do. Okay, so Anna sees this same thing, right? Uh, and she begins to praise God to speak about the child. So what I want you to, to think about more this week uh, and, and in your, uh, your groups, if you stick around for your groups, is, um, is all of these things. How does the Spirit speak to you? Where does light need to happen today, right? Where do you need some light in your life? How do you function to bring light into other people's lives? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? Or have you been one of those people who's brought darkness into people's lives? Do you want to be that kind of a person? <laughs> right? We know those kind of people, don't we? Some people who, right? What kind of person? All of those questions can come out of something like this. Thoughts, questions, ideas? Yes, ma'am. Way at the very back. Vicki. True. Yeah, maybe Jesus told people later. Yeah, Mary told Jesus these stories. This is what happened when you were born. This is what happened when we took you to the temple. And Jesus, sure, that could be possible. Yeah, maybe, maybe, absolutely. I mean, our mothers tell us lots of stories about what we were like as kids, right? And how they slaved and worked and how we owe them for everything that we've got now. Da, 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 da. <laughs> so he's, he's an anomaly his whole life. Yeah, yeah. So what if when he's in his 30s and he's got these followers or a teenager or whatever... If he has this re revelation that as a human infant, I, this I, is what I know Simeon this or I know Anna that. Sure, maybe. sure. Just maybe, maybe, yeah, exactly. One of the questions, we, these are interesting questions to ask. We obviously can never come to conclusions. What a lot of scholars want to do is ask, why would Luke make sure this story was here, presuming the story was known by others, right? And one of the things that happens all throughout Luke and throughout Acts is how, Jesus, how Luke is showing us that from the very beginning, Jesus was God, right? Because he was preexistent with God. And how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that happens in Israel. Jesus is taken as every good child would be to the temple. And he is affirmed in who he is here by these two folks, a man and a woman, both of whom have been righteous and looking towards God. Um, that, that gives us more ammunition, if you will, more evidence for who Jesus is and what Jesus means in the world. Okay, good. We need to stop so that you can go finish up the leftovers. God, thank you so much for the joy of being together, for the joy of being opened in our minds and understanding by the word of your scripture. Help us to always look to you and to see the light that you bring to our lives and then to bring that to others for the sake of him who is the light of the Gentiles and the glory of Israel, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you all.